I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast... Follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, a.k.a. that hat I always wear. Go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. For a little bit of context, we just wanted you to know that a lot of these were recorded before quarantine. And as we know, a lot has changed in 2020. So again, please stay safe out there and enjoy the new episodes of And The Writer Is. Today's podcast is brought to you by Banzoogle. Built for musicians, by musicians. Banzoogle makes it easy to build a professional website and EPK for your music. Whether you're looking to book more gigs or need an affordable solution to manage your direct-to-fan sales and mailing list, you can use Banzoogle's simple tools to design a website and store that both you and your fans will love. Go to Banzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days and use the promo code ATWI to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's ATWI to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's iconic singer-dancer, acts, produces film, hosts radio programs and podcasts, is a New York Times best-selling author, activist, philanthropist, diamond-selling band member, and literal astronaut. You may know his group as one of the top boy bands in the history of recorded music, selling over 70 million albums, setting music industry records by selling records, InSync's achievements are still the gold standard for popular music. But even more importantly, his legendary advocacy in the LGBTQ community has become the platinum standard for philanthropy. From Laurel, Mississippi, you could accurately call this guy a space cowboy with his dedicated contribution to the space community. And the writer is, from Moonmen to Cosmonaut, Lance Bass. <laughs> I need to really edit my resume. <laughs> That's I mean, great. The, you have you have. Can I use that going forward? Oh like, yeah. Where, any, anywhere I'm going to get introduced, I'm just going to play that. Absolutely. Yeah. You'll just you should just implant that uh, in your podcast. Yeah, it's like, that's who be you the are. Opening. Screw our theme song. That's yeah. Be the opening now. Um, you have so many hyphens. You are clearly like a uh, you know when when you were little, did you 
have, did you know you want to be a musician or did you want to be an astronaut or did you want to be an author? I mean, <laughs> from the outset, were you just constantly doing everything? Yeah, I, I was, I always was and am interested in everything. Yeah. Um, and as a kid, I, I wanted to be either a comedian or an astronaut. Uh-huh. <laughs> Those, well, I didn't even think I wanted to be a comedian, but my friends were like, you need to be a comedian. And I was just like, I just want to be an astronaut. That's all I wanted to do. Well, where where is Laurel, Mississippi? It is uh, South Mississippi. I don't know if you know where Hattiesburg uh-huh. is. Sure. Usually, because I actually lived in Ellisville, Mississippi, which no one ever heard of. So I always say Laurel, which is the town next to it where I was born. Then no one knows where that is. So Hattiesburg, which is where Brett Favre is from, yeah. is where usually people know where I'm from. Um, why why there? Why did your parents live there? Um, I'm like fifth generation there. I don't know who, I don't know my great, great grandparents. Um, and I don't know where they came from, but all I know is we're just from Laurel, Mississippi. I don't know any other family member that wasn't born. Do you have brothers and sisters? I have a sister. Yeah. She's three years older. What was music like in your family growing up? Who, who did music? Did your parents play? Uh, no, none of my, my parents played, but my uncle, my uncle was the big musician in our family. So he played guitar. He loved singing. Uh, he was known in our town as the singer. So they'd always, you know, pick him to do all kinds of fun sure. stuff and all the commercials. You what know, kind of, oh, TV. really? Oh yeah. Oh, all yeah. the local commercials? All the local commercials. Yes. Did, did you sing on, did you end up in no. local commercials? Or no, anything because like that? at that point I didn't know I even could sing. Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. singing kind of fell into my lap. Um, when I moved away from that town, I went to Clinton, Mississippi. And that's where the town there was so musical. It had the uh, number one show choir in the world. And so I went from, you know, playing sports to now I'm in a show choir with all my friends because that was the cool thing to do. What kind of music was the show choir? Uh, all kinds of stuff. We would, uh, you know, do your Broadway type stuff, but then we in competitions, you would do, you know, the the new stuff that's on the sure. radio and just your version of it. Right. I definitely remember being in Coraliers and which mm-hmm. was our show choir yeah. and having, you know, the sequins cummerbund and bow tie oh, yeah. and just like I have so many sequin vests, it's ridiculous. They don't do that anymore. They uh, they kinda took that away. Yeah. Now it's a little more cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean I just you, well, I mean, yeah, none of what it was was cool, but <laughs> that the pot of berets and kickball changes oh, yeah, and yeah. while you're singing some sort of song that you might know, but I feel like yeah. our choir teacher whatever yeah but um, it really helped i mean i my director there david fair he's the reason i have such discipline in this industry really i mean he, he was just one of those you always hear of those crazy directors but how old were you at that point i was 14 when i joined out uh-huh. yeah and i mean but he would scare the crap out of you Whoa. i mean just berate you and would that work now that kind of I think so oh, yeah i mean I, I still see it i mean look at abby lee miller and people like that i mean yeah. it's just this tough love and and it really did instill major disciplinary. So I'm very, I hated him then, but I love him now. Were you a, a bass <laughs> yes, then? Since I was 14, yeah. Crazy. Uh-huh. Yeah, I went from very high, because I had like a very high voice when I was singing in choir to immediately the next year it was bass. Yeah. That's insane. <laughs> um, I obviously, you know, so much of the early years of you is something that I feel like we can find in, uh, you know, Wikipedia and and whatnot. Because Wikipedia is so true. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But something takes you from doing show choirs at 14 and it's only a couple years later that you end up becoming a professional 
performer who says to you, you need to get out of this town and you need to start auditioning? Um, no one. I, I never have auditioned before. How and, did you get selected? Um, we all knew each other through different ways. It was it was strange. Um, it was very kismet how we all formed. But two of the guys worked at Universal Studios and two of the guys worked at Disney. Uh, so JC and Justin were on the Mickey Mouse Club. Right. And Chris and Joey were working at Universal. Um, and Chris was upset he didn't get to even audition for the Backstreet Boys in Orlando because his friend Howie DeRoe, you know, went to school with got in. He's like, well, you know, and he was a you know a soprano type voice. He's like, well, I could I could outsing him. Why didn't I get to audition? So he went to Lou Pearlman. This is how big of balls Chris Kirkpatrick has. Went to Lou Pearlman and said, hey, you know, I know you put this group together, but he goes, but if I put a group together, would you fund us? And Lou was like, sure. So Chris, uh, I don't know how he knew Justin, but I was the first person he called. He called Justin Timberlake. He was up in Tennessee. He was recording with JC because they were doing a duo type thing. Um, and Justin said, yeah, that sounds fun, but can I? Can JC join the group with us? And he was like, sure. So it was those three. And then they were all at Planet Hollywood, not Planet Hollywood, Pleasure Island in Disney. And um, they were at this club called 8-Tracks, saw Joey on the dance floor. And JC's like, huh. oh, I went to high school with that guy. They're like, he's a great dancer. I wonder if he can sing. Let's put him in the group. So they put him in the group as the bass singer. Then realized he can't sing bass. <laughs> and right. that's when they called me because I knew Justin through a vocal coach. So um, they would have been a, for, a quartet. They were going they as a quartet. Have... Oh, yeah. They were going as a quartet. And then they had, before me, Joey's friend Jason was came on, but then he didn't want to do ch- like child music, is what he called it. <laughs> yeah. He didn't want to do pop music. So he left the group. And that's when they called me. And I flew down and sang with him, and it was all over. Did, have you ever come? In contact with that guy that you replaced? No, I have not. Although he did, he he was delivering pizzas at the time, and I know when we got our our record deal, we did order pizza, and he delivered the pizza to the to the house. Yeah. So I was like, oh shit, yeah. <laughs> so crazy. The Lou Pearlman story is starting to come out partly because of the work you've done to with your documentary and whatnot. I don't think people outside of the industry really know too much about it unless they've really seeked it out. Right. Um, explain who Lou Perlman is at the time and what it's like to be a, at this point, 15, 16 year old, I would assume, right? Yeah, when you sign, yeah so 16 year old around Lou Perlman and these, these boy bands and, and the, you know the pop stars and the business he was creating. Just get, since you've worked on a documentary, how explain who Lou Perlman is? Yeah, well, at the time I really didn't know who Lou was, but he did show this larger than life character. Um, I didn't know at this point that there was a Backstreet Boys, um, and at this point in 1995, there was no there was no such thing as a boy band. So I didn't know what world I was ab- about to enter. We, when we got together, all we had to look up to was boys to men, you know, and as yet, um, you know, these acapella groups, and that's that's what we were. We were just an acapella group. Um, and Lou, I mean, I knew he had a record label, but as as all, all I knew was that we were the only artist <laughs> that yeah. he had. Uh, I would later find out, of course, he had Backstreet Boys, and then he kept us from that. You know, he kept us a, a secret at the label. He named us B5 on all the records. He didn't want the boys to find out. He had another group just like him, which was kind of 
I mean, that was crazy <laughs> that he would. I don't. Have two I guess groups. I didn't know this part. I didn't know that he hid you guys from each oh, other. Oh yeah, yeah. He did not want the Backstreet Boys to know that uh, we were together. Because I mean, it's it's. How did you guys crazy. find out about about it? Uh, I mean, was it just sort of once it hit? Just then you guys yeah. I realized, mean, oh wait, we're on the same. Yeah, I mean, it 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 hit quickly that next year because we went to Germany. Um, the Backstreet Boys were over in Germany a year before we were, and they blew up yeah, quickly. Yeah, so big. And that's where everyone learned this boy band term. And there was about fifty boy bands in Europe, um, all huge. And so it was this crazy world of just boy band. So we um, we tried to get our deal here in America, but no one would sign us. I mean, Tommy Mottola, everyone was like, eh, "No, this will never work here in America." So uh, BMG, Ariola, and, and Munich signed us, and uh, we f- I was packing up my bags to go finish my senior year in high school because we couldn't get a deal. I mean, we were working, I mean, for a year, and no one would pay any attention to us. And I said, "Okay, guys, let me go finish my senior year, um, and then I'll just come on the weekends and we'll sing on the weekend and practice." Sure. Uh, and it was when I was packing my bags to go back to Mississippi that we get the call that we got signed to Munich. And I was now heading to Germany the next day. And then we lived there for about two years. Did you ever finish school? Uh, I did, yeah. Uh, University of Nebraska is who does our um, our schooling. So me and Justin and everyone that was underage finished with them. Oh, wow. So while you were on tour, you had a I actually a tutor? finished uh, before I... Got on tour, so because I only had it only took me about six months to finish my schooling, sure. and then that's when we got signed. So I I was out of school, but Justin had to continue. His took a little longer just because we, you know, the first album released and he had no time to right. study, so he was delayed a little bit. Huh, crazy. When you're in Germany and you see how big Backstreet Boys are, what is the step from? You know, seeing that, did you want to be as big as they were? Did you want to be different than they were? Were you guys emulating that? You guys end up going to a lot of the same songwriters, which I don't know if that was the same, you know, if that was a choice or who was choosing these songs. But yeah. being that this is primarily a songwriting podcast, how did you guys? Feel about the songs that were being presented to you? Did you have a choice? Did you care? Was you know? There's so much happening so fast. It is so and, much happening, and you're 16 years old. How do you guys deal with life um, in this world? Well, Explain and, I mean, what it's like. We were kids, and you know, as budding musicians, we still didn't even know what our sound was. Because, like I said, when we first started, you know, we couldn't afford music, so we were just an acapella right. group. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, I I loved what we did there, and. Really, I thought the biggest we could get was just getting hired at Disney and be the local Disney acapella group. <laughs> of course. You know, that, that was my dreams. Yeah. Um, and it just got a little bigger. So when we went over to Europe, it was we definitely had an um, identity crisis because we didn't know what our group was just yet. Because we, we played around with playing instruments. Mm-hmm. No one liked that. Um, what instrument did you play? A piano, yeah. yeah. And so everyone had their own, you know, their own instrument that you know we play, but no one liked that. So people wanted to including see us you guys. Yeah, I didn't like yeah. it. I mean, it was just too boring yeah. to me. Um, I like performing. You know, yeah. I like to you know be on stage. I like dancing, and I knew all those guys love dancing. So we uh, we knew we wanted to be more of a performance act sure. uh, than getting behind instruments. Um, so we were touring around with that. We go to Europe, and then of course techno is huge. So then there, we were throwing a lot of techno things and. It's just not us at all. But 
the record label forced us to put a couple of those on our first album because you know we were a European band now. Right. Horrible, horrible choices. Uh, but we were very lucky early on in our first album to find Dennis Pop, and that yeah. was because of our manager Johnny Wright, who also managed the Backstreet Boys. Um, their relationship with Dennis Pop was great, and Max Martin, of course. Um, so our very first single that we recorded was over in Stockholm uh, with Dennis Pop, with uh, his protege Max Martin. Yeah, that's uh, crazy. Um, I want you back. When, yeah. How soon after recording that, because that kind of helps really define how everyone else viewed you guys, because it's the first single that really came out. Did you guys feel once you recorded that, that, oh, that's our sound. And then you emulate that by getting as many songs as you can. Is that sort of the idea? Yeah, well, when I want you back uh, came around, I immediately loved it. I just love that, dun, 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 you know, just that. Dun, 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 dun. I mean, ten, yeah. it's that Dennis Pop beat. Um, and I knew once we recorded that, I was like, "This, this is definitely us." It yeah. felt, it just felt right. Yeah. Um, and then the follow up with that, with tearing in my heart, was very similar. And so we really solidified us as kind of the up tempo pop dance, you know, group. And and that's what we. I mean, we did a lot of ballads and all that, but. I think when you think about our music, you think mainly, you know, kind of aggressive dance, you know, fun pop music. When those start coming out and Backstreet's already established in Europe, and was there any competition as far as in your head or in their head in any way as far as who gets these songs? Or was it just sort of, look, we are our band, you're your band, we got these songs first? Yeah, we never really, we never cared about you know what they were doing we we were just so hyper focused on trying to do what we needed to do um and i mean every day was you know every hour was booked so you didn't have time to think about what's going on in any other person's life uh but i loved the competition we had with the backstreet boys especially in the beginning because it's what made us get better and better and better and we worked so hard because we were the redheaded stepchild i mean our whole entire career and so we always felt Second best, second best, always second best, and so it just kept us, you know, working harder and harder and harder. And then you turn around one day, and you're like, "Oh wait, we're actually doing better right now." <laughs> like somehow we've like yeah. caught, caught up to them. In the United States, it's just I feel like when you guys came into the United States, which is weird because you guys are American, but <laughs> you know, if that's the case, where once those songs are released here, there was no bigger band. It, it it blew up a lot quicker here. That's for sure. Uh, it was it was interesting because I remember talking to Lou Pearlman many times about this. We wanted to make sure that we released in America first because we knew America is not like Europe. There, you're only going to get one band like this. You're going to get your one Spice Girls, your one Destiny's Child, your one In Sync. You know, that's it. Like you can't have multiple of the same type of bands. Right. America won't handle that. Um, so we knew we had to be first out, or our career was over. And of course, Lou lied to us and uh, ended up releasing Backstreet, you know, months before us, and they blew up. And of course, we were the redheaded stepchild again. And so we had to do the whole European thing again of, you know, defending ourselves on why we, um, you know, belong to be in this industry when there's a Backstreet Boys. Right. So, uh, you know, that sucked. But then quickly we did this Disney Channel special. And ironically, Backstreet Boys turned down because. I guess they, did. I don't know if they didn't want to be on Disney or they just wanted a break. I'm sure they just wanted a break. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we took it, and it, that's what blew us up in America. Within a month, we went from, I think our song was probably 40 something, and it just went top 10 immediately. 
and it didn't stop for years. It's weird that the stereotype with, you know, the avoiding being this kind of boy band or that kind of boy band. And the word boy band has a connotation to it that's just not true. It's yeah. like the, yeah, it's, the it's people I know bit. who have come from boy bands are the best musicians yeah. that, you know, they're, you know, certainly of the era that you guys were in, not only were you guys good singers and good curators, but you guys also could dance. How do you keep up with the physical demands of being in? A boy band at that age, or is it just like I'm that age? I just can do anything. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you do. Because feel... if I did, you know, if I try to dance at all yeah. now, I'm like I'm on the floor for uh, a month. <laughs> you know, it's... and but I, I was a horrible dancer. Like I, they had to teach me how to dance. It took me a while to really learn how to. I mean, I did show choir, and I thought that was dancing. Yeah, <laughs> it's not. You know, yeah. jazz hands are not. You know, you know, you the real dancing you need to do. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it was I was young. You know, you, you know, you had all this energy, so you felt like you were invincible. Everyone told you you were invincible. You're like, you know, enjoy while you're young. Oh, you're young. You know, you don't need to <laughs> sleep. We would get maybe an average of three hours of sleep a night, um, which is not good for a kid, you know, uh, definitely need the rest. And I think that's what really, it really, I don't know, it, it, it burned me out a lot, uh, towards the point, end especially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were you burned out after? I mean, throughout the project. I mean, because it's a, it's a gradual thing to get burned out. Yeah. yeah. How soon after you guys have number one hits? You know, then you you have to the album cycle's done. You have to get back. You had seven singles, I think, on the first album or something like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Are you recording already the next album oh, while yeah. you're doing? I mean, we were constantly just recording. And the thing is, right after the first album, you know. You know, we had that. Europe was our first time to release, but so we we took half of those songs and redid it for the America release. Um, so we were always in the studio, and then in between the first, well, that album, No Strings Attached, we decided to do a Christmas album. Yeah. So we kind of threw that in the middle when we had zero time to do it, but ended up being my favorite album we ever recorded. Yeah. We threw that one together so quickly. I mean, it's amazing over uh, over Christmas. We're mm-hmm. still like you just hear it constantly. Oh god, yeah. I mean, look, if you want to live forever, do a Christmas album. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. is amazing. Uh, but yeah, every year, you know that those songs come back up and, and coming from Mississippi, where you guys have religious family. Oh yeah, Southern Baptist, very very strict. So the Baptist. Christmas album did they did they have um, were they excited because you did a Christmas album or as being strictly religious, did they look at the kind of music you did as secular and did no, they have issues with it? It wasn't like that, no, right? No, I mean, they loved it at the Christmas album. It is my yeah. family's favorite because they are very Christian, but no, they, they, you know, Southern Baptists, even Southern Baptists, you can't dance. Like you go to hell if you if you dance. Whoa. You know that? Oh yeah, I didn't know. It's that. one of the rules. Yeah, I feel like the, the image is is more yeah. like a Southern Baptist, like a, a black church of people just right. No, no like dan- not, no, yeah. you cannot dance. It is the devil inside of you. Um, but we were never that family, and even the church I went to, like that was just such a weird rule that no one ever. Were there people who looked at, when you become successful people at home know about you when you become worldwide famous i imagine that people had all kinds of opinions about how you're living your life and who you are um is it was it hard to go back home to a small town or was it enjoyable to go back home uh it was enjoyable and it still is to this day i'm my best friends, you know, still live back yeah. home. I see them all the time. We do yeah. trips together. So going back home to Mississippi really grounds yeah. me. Um, it takes a couple of days to 
figure out how to relax because <laughs> it's such a different speed. But uh, but I love it. It, it really is um, what I can always just go home to and feel like I'm at home. You said earlier when Lou Pearlman released Backstreet First, you said, you know, and of course he lied. Uh-huh. When did you realize that he was lying? Um, I always knew Lou liked to embellish. I mean, you could just tell his stories were probably true, but just not the way he was yeah. saying it. It was just always so so grand. Um, so I knew he embellished a lot, but I didn't know he was just a strict liar. Um, and that only dawned to me later when, uh, you know, before we did No Strings Attached and the whole lawsuit happened, um, when he gave us our check presentation, that's when I knew, okay, this guy is just, is explain is Explain what the lawsuit situation and the, no, explain that situation. Yeah, so, you know, we... We had been working for, I think, three years at this point, and uh, we still were just living off of our per diem, which was $35 a day. And, you know, we had sold, you know, 14 million records at this point and number one tours, biggest merchandise sales in the world. I mean, it was, I mean, we were making millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. Well, someone was, but we were just getting $35 a day. And because we were just these, you know, kids <laughs> that didn't really know about the industry, um, and we were so busy, didn't have a day off. We didn't really have to, we didn't think about the business part. We just thought, okay, well, eventually we're all going to get this big check, right? And we're all going to be made and all, it all is presented to you at one time. But it, you know, it takes a while to get there because they, you know, the record label has to spend this money, blah, blah, blah. Um, but not knowing that we had the worst contract in music history, uh, was the reason that we weren't seeing a dime. Um, so then I think Lou got wind of us kind of, talking about, well, when are we going to get paid? Like, when am I going to be able to afford an apartment or buy a car? Like, I didn't have anything. I, I didn't own anything. I had no money. Um, but yeah, I was in the biggest band in the world. And so he flew everywhere out from Germany, the record label, all our families, all to Los Angeles, to uh, to Lowry's Steakhouse here. And he had all these check, you know, checks in front of us in an envelope and we were having this great family dinner because he always had these great family dinners. You know, Lou is all about food. Um, and yeah, we opened up the checks and we were, you know, expecting a lot and it was $10,000 each. And that's when I knew there was definitely something wrong. Who was, who was the whistleblower as far as saying, hey, this contract's messed up? Did you have a lawyer? Were you being kept from talking to attorneys? We were, yeah. I mean, because... A lot of people don't understand this, but Lou Pearlman was actually the sixth member of NSYNC. Right. So there were six members of the group. And the whole reasoning for that, and he was explaining to us, trust me, this is the way you want to do it because if you just pay me as a sixth member, I'm in the group. So you don't have to pay lawyers. You don't have to pay me as a record label. Uh, you don't have to pay me as a manager. Um, I'm taking care of all That's my part as a, a member of this group. I'm taking care of all that. So he took care of all the law stuff. Wow. Yeah. So when he said, here's the contract, you signed this, you yeah. just said, sure. Okay. Yeah, this is contract. Sure. This You're is the exact same contract Backstreet Boys signed. You know, the lawyers looked at it and said, yeah, it's a contract. But it was his lawyers. And right. we never had our entertainment lawyers look at it. So who's the first person to say, when you got that check, that's when you said, I kind of want to find another lawyer? Yeah, me and JC. We were the ones that, um, you know, were just pissed. And, he had Do you remember uncle. the conversation when one of you said, we need to get a lawyer? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, immediately right after this dinner, we all were just so numb uh, and thanked him you know, for the check, but we were numb. 
And so I took JC to the side. I said, we, we have to figure something out. And he said, well, my uncle's a lawyer. Let's start with him. So we called his uncle um, and he had someone, you know, look at an entertainment lawyer. And that's when we first realized it was the worst contract in music history. Yeah. How did you get out of this? Uh, we were very lucky, you know, because Backstreet Boys had the same contract and they wanted to go through the same, you know, you know, they sued Lou to get out of it. But they, uh, they had, uh, we had an out um, that they didn't have. What was that? Um, they got signed to Jive in New York City. We got signed with Munich, Germany. Lou had to find us an American record deal within a year or we're free. So we had a little, little out because we weren't signed to an American label. Wow, so all you had to say is, well, we're not going to sign. Yeah, and, yeah. and so we told them that, we're like, look, we're not, we're not signed. And we told RCA was our label now at this point. And we said, guys, we're not signed with Transcontinental Records anymore. We have an out. And no one believed us. Um, that's when Lou Perlman sued us. Uh, and a lot of people don't understand that, too. Lou sued us. We never sued Lou. <laughs> and it was, wow. only, it was only for the name. Like, all we want to do is renegotiate. Even to the, I mean, when it got so bad, all we want to do is get a fair contract. We never wanted to get rid of Lou. We just wanted to renegotiate a normal contract. And he just was not going for it. And I remember we sat there and we tried to mediate. Um, Strauss Zelnick uh, was our, you know, boss, uh, you know, BMG. And he sat there in the mediation room and he heard Lou's story, he heard our story, and he just looked at us and said, guys, I think you might have one album in you. I'm signing with Lou. And he just walked out of the room. So we knew our career was just over then. We didn't have our name. Lou owned the name NSYNC, so we were no longer allowed to use NSYNC. And then that's when Lou took us to court over our name because he, he sued to make sure we could not use the name NSYNC. And by the way, he's still making about 85% of everything we do. So it's, you know, I don't because know why of the way the contract. to stop this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we were in court and the judge just looks at Lou and says, so you're saying you are in sync, but these five guys over here that my daughter has their picture on their wall <laughs> yeah. is not in sync. Were you actually in the courtroom oh, yeah. during this? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was amazing. She's like, no. She's like, that's ridiculous. So she gave us our name, and that's that was the only lawsuit we had to go through, and we did get our name back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today. 
Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle. Built for musicians by musicians, you can use Banzoogle's tools to easily design a website, an EPK, sell your music, merch directly to your fans, and it's commission-free. Banzoogle also recently added a crowdfunding feature, which lets you crowdfund your next project commission-free. So think about it. Your fans want to help fund your album, you don't need a record deal anymore. You can just use Banzoogle. So go to Banzoogle.com, try it free for 30 days. Be sure to use the promo code ATWI and you'll get 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's ATWI at Banzoogle.com for 15% off of any subscription. Uh, through the lens of the Me Too movement, also there are some other th- things that have percolated around Lou Pearlman. Mm-hmm. I feel like he would have been, you know, a prime candidate for a cancel culture kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, Lou was a different character. You know, he's I I would not put him up there with the Harvey Weinstein's of the world. Lou was very jovial but shy when it came to, I think, sexuality. Um, if I were a betting man, yeah, I would say that he was probably a closeted homosexual, um, something that I knew a lot about. Right. You know? um, so I always had a soft spot for him in that realm because I was like, oh, this poor guy is obviously into guys, but he can't say it, and, you know, and he's pretending to date this nurse over here, but like, I can totally <laughs> see right through this because even though I'm 17... I know what it's like to be in the closet because I knew since I was five years old. So I always had this soft spot for him. And um, but Lou was, you know, he was very touchy feely with everyone. So I could see that being part of the whole like me too. Like okay, you know, you hear that all the time with women at work and their bosses come up and start massaging their shoulders, and it's just not a comfortable feeling. He was like that, but he was like that with everyone, even our moms, and that you know. So it was, it wasn't just on guys, but I think he. Uh, I just I I've never heard of him doing anything. Yeah. You know, you hear all this pedophilia, you know, talk, but I've not had any proof that he ever did anything. Maybe he was into that or wanted to, you know, whatever, but yeah. I don't I don't, I've never known him to act on anything. So that's why I'm saying to me, I can't put him over the Harvey Weinsteins where you just hear these horrible, horrible stories. I haven't heard one on Lou. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what was going on in that head. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've heard a few stories, but we'll talk about that later. I would um, love to. I mean, yeah. I, I, mean, I would love to. I don't know if they're, to, yeah. I mean, who knows? I mean, it's also, it's it's 25 years ago, so it gets uh-huh. complicated, yeah. I think, on. Mm-hmm. When and it's also because he's such a, he was such a, a consistent liar, yeah. you know, that. Uh, whatever, that's a whole other thing. I mean, it's crazy. And, you know, after doing the documentary, I learned a lot more. And, you know, we, we tried interviewing so many people. Explain that- the documentary, because it's just, mm-hmm. is it, it hasn't been distributed yet outside of the festival circuit. No, correct? It's, it's YouTube. It's a YouTube film. It is on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it, it was, um, we didn't, we, we premiered at South by Southwest, but, right. uh, it was, it was already bought by YouTube. I got it. Um, which, I wish it was a Netflix HBO film because I think more people would have seen it. Uh, but it is now free on YouTube. It took me forever to get them to get it for free. So you can watch it free. It's called The Boy Band Con. But I just wanted to take a look at Lou Perlman from not just the Backstreet NSYNC an- angle, but from his birth to death. And who is this guy? Yeah. And 
it was, I was just fascinated with everything I was uncovering, all these crazy stories that he always told us. And then we realized they were just all bullshit. <laughs> Like yeah. every single one of them. Well, I mean, just to put a close on Lou Perlman, so it's not all about Lou Perlman, <laughs> but like, you know, the he ends up getting caught for this whole Ponzi, Ponzi scheme, scheme around an airlines, mm-hmm. and he's he's uh, leveraging in sync and Backstreet in order to get people yeah. to invest. Did any of that Ponzi scheme end up affecting you personally in your wallet? Um, it did not. Uh, that it, This Ponzi scheme was just horrible. He took advantage of so many, especially elderly people in Orlando, took their whole life savings. And in order to get all this investment from them, he dangled us and the Backstreet Boys and whoever else he had, and even Britney Spears, who he didn't even represent, he would dangle that you know, in front of all these investors. And of course, they were like, well, yeah, you're in a billion dollar business over here. Of course, I'm going to invest in you and all this return you're saying we're going to get. So he, uh, you know, it, it sucked that he would use our name in order to take people's life savings. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you knew when you were five that you were gay, mm-hmm. and here you're in Mississippi in a Southern Baptist area. Uh, I cannot imagine how complicated that is. <laughs> It was um, because what you're learning it in church is clearly not what you're feeling right. as a human. Yeah, I was very confused. I mean, it was it was a very lonely time because, on one hand, you know, I knew I was gay since I was five, and I knew inside that there this can't be wrong. Like, I just, I mean, how can this feeling be wrong? So I knew that everything I was being told about being gay and how it was wrong and the whole religion side of it that they were wrong. But then how am I supposed to tell my own religion that I've been growing up in that you're wrong? So I was so confused, and especially at the beginning of NSYNC when I was a teenager, I was very religious. And, you know, because I still thought that I could pray the gay away. Like I was always, you know, it's like I would pray every night, just can I please wake up straight? Can I please wake up straight? And of course that (laughs) never went away. Um, So it was, you know. Did anybody know? No. I never told anyone. Man. Anyone. No, because I knew if I even told one person, that it was over. And it wasn't. What about the guys in the band? No, I even knew them. They couldn't even keep a secret. Yeah. (laughs) I I didn't want anyone to know anything. I just didn't want to even talk about it. I I put all my focus into work. You know, even if we had one day off, I was still working on something. I was way too busy to have a girlfriend, way too busy to do anything. I just didn't want to even think about it. When did you first have a boyfriend? Uh, after NSYNC, it was, um, yeah, it was right after I did that whole space thing. And it was about a few months after I got back from Russia and we were supposed to start recording the new album. It was going to be November 1st. I had to be back from Russia, November 1st. So I got back and we didn't end up recording this album. Um, and they just kept saying, oh, we need three more months. Okay. Well, now we need three more months. And so... During this time off, which I didn't know I was going to have time off, I met someone, you know, and that's when I started really focusing on my personal life. And because at this point we didn't, we didn't have many friends, you know, I mean, we, we, that's all we did was work. (laughs) So we didn't know many people. So now getting out there and meeting people and especially like gay people um, and falling in love for the first time, it, it really, you know, it changed my life. I moved mm. to California where it was a lot easier, you know, to be out. Because again, in the early 2000s, it was still very taboo to be gay. It's crazy how far we've come just in the last 20 years. Yeah. But in 2000, 
I mean, it was a death sentence, you know, for your career. If anyone found out, you I mean, look at Ellen and just, it was just a horrible, and all, and those are the only examples I had. It was like, holy crap, I will never tell, and for the rest of my life, I will never tell anyone. I will marry a girl, I'm sure. You know, it's, mm-hmm. you, you just kept tricking yourself into thinking of the life you could possibly have. But then once you finally meet that first love of your life, yeah. that's when I knew, oh my God, this is it. Like, are you kidding me? And I wasn't ashamed of it anymore. I was like, screw screw anyone that's against this. Like, I got to live my life. Do you know of, of artists now that are still afraid to... Come out? Yeah, come oh, out. Yes. Do you, Several, yeah. And is there... How does that change? What is the difference? You know, why does it have to be when someone's finished? You know, you see that with athletes all the time. So yeah. always when they retire is when they when they yeah, of come out. You know, because why? But but it feels like as artists, this is an era. Well, you would think where the people music industry would be more accepting. was accepting, but it's not. Music industry is probably one of the most homophobic industries. No. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Explain oh. this, especially radio. That's what I've found out. Like, wow. Radio is so homophobic, um, and the heads of the labels. I mean, there's still this old school. You know mentality, um, and, and it and it's still to this day. I mean, it's it's very homophobic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, I know of, I know of a few people who are obviously, you know, really pushing to have um, their labels and their writers, you know, for their publishing companies be only people who are part of the community. And you know, it's it's interesting seeing. I feel like. I mean, I guess we always feel like our generation's the one that's pushing it along, you know. But I would assume that if you're 10 now and you're 15 now, or you're about to be in the in sync of tomorrow, that that person will have it easier. I, I hope, hope so. God, I hope. I mean, I couldn't imagine another like group coming out without a gay member in it. You know, I think if there was right. another in sync, I would think that they would purposely make sure. That there was someone gay in this group, yeah, and I love that. That's that's the you know the times we're living right yeah. now. That that would be you know the possibility. I love it. So let's go back. You were saying you know uh, going to no strings attached. You know you had um, you had already done the first album in sync, the self titled album. It's just massive. Sells 10, 15 million albums, which is so hard to comprehend. You're credited as a in sync is credited as a writer on a song in, mm-hmm. in InSync. Yeah. That begins the in a way that's that begins your career as a songwriter and as a publisher. Yeah. Uh as the the next two albums, you start seeing JC's name and Justin's name on it. Did you want to get involved in writing? Were you writing for the band? Um, I did want to get more involved. Uh, I never was confident in my writing because, again, I was seventeen, so I you know I didn't know what writing was. But when we would at the beginning of our career, we would be able to get together and write. And so as a group, we always wrote. And here's the reason that we stopped writing as a group. Um, again, Lou Perlman was the sixth member of NSYNC. Oh, right. And Lou kept encouraging us, guys, you have to write together. And even if just two of you write, you have to credit it under NSYNC because that's just the way it should be. Only because he got a sixth of it in the publishing because he was the sixth member of NSYNC. So whatever we wrote as NSYNC, Lou got the sixth of so that's why JC and Justin were like, "Screw that! I'm going to do my own. I'm never, I mean, I'm, they're not going to give money to Lou, especially after we found out he was screwing us. So that's why you never saw any more in sync written stuff. Wow. Yeah. Um, no strings attached 
Is that the first album that comes out then after the lawsuit, or yes. is that happening with the lawsuit? It was happening? right after. Right after we got rid of Lou, which again we didn't get rid of Lou. We just renegotiated a better contract. So, uh, but that's when you finally get paid for the first yes, time. Yes, we finally got a first paycheck uh, right after that whole thing, and right before No Strings Attached. Uh, and No Strings Attached was going to be our first album that we really controlled. I mean, this was our baby, and you know, it was all about us leaving Lou Perlman. I mean, it's what inspired us to do the whole marionette thing and no strings attached. I mean, bye, bye, bye. Yeah. Um, you know, it was all part of a theme. Yeah. And uh, we were scared because we didn't think that, you know, we didn't think the fans would support us if we were gone for too long. And we had already been gone for so long. We're like, well, we have no idea if this album's even going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we released Bye, 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 and it just kind of took us to the next level. Uh, 2.4 million songs in the first, or sorry, 2.4 million albums in the first week set the record for 15 years. Um, Damn you, Adele. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but 50, you know, the recorded music's only really, as an industry, really hits when Elvis becomes the first pop star. You know, previous to that, there were. There were projects that sold significant amounts, but it's not until Elvis that it really blows up. So, yeah. 15 years of, you know, 70 years of a music industry is a massive chunk to own own records. Did you have any idea the significance? Was everyone telling you that, or was this sort of, you know, were you appreciating it? Do you appreciate it differently now? Uh, we completely appreciated every moment. We knew what was going on because, of course, I mean, we would do an interview every hour, and it was all, you know, oh, y'all did this, yeah. people, and it was always breaking a record, breaking a record, mm. and it was incredible because we knew we were in a moment in music, you know, history that would never happen again. Like we just knew there was something going on, you know, with Britney and Destiny's Child and us and Bash and Christina. It was this explosion, and the people were selling records like no other. And the only people we could compare it to were the Beatles or New Kids on the Block. Um, and we just knew something was special. So we were just so appreciative, and just we couldn't believe it. Every time that we would do something fun and like break a record, we're like, wow, I cannot believe this is happening. Did you know to save your money when you guys finally got it because no. there's not there's just, <laughs> there's such a difference between oh we're not we're not seeing money to seeing money from being in the biggest band yeah the, the you know to go from one to the other within one album is you no no human can understand that no. swing and no one can really handle it especially cuz you know we we all came from no money like we were all pretty poor you know growing up so you know, when you go from having zero money to having a lot of money overnight, well, it seems like overnight, yeah. a lot of people can't handle that. They don't know how to, you don't know how to save because you never learned how to save. You spend everything that you've ever, you know, made. Um, so that was, that was definitely a learning curve for sure because you get, you know, you're up in this, you know, level, you know, the, the biggest band in the world, you're making all this money. Then you don't realize that that's going to stop one day. You, you know, as a kid, you're thinking, well, I'm set for life. Like, how, how could I? I mean, we're going to be making this money the rest of our life, right? Yeah. Not knowing that, yes, there's a finite time for your group and you should be saving this. And, uh, and I had to learn that the hard way, especially when we went through the whole Lou Perlman thing and didn't make money off our first album, first two albums. Um, you know, I, I definitely 
you know, should have left with a lot more. And, you know, it sucks. It sucks that I wasn't able to set my life up as much as it should have been set up. How was the relationship between the members at this point? You know, you've released a few albums, you've gone through lawsuits together. Um, some people are getting publishing, some people aren't, some people are, it, you know, there's starting to be a pay discrepancy, I'm sure, between the members. Because when you have a publisher, uh, yeah. or you, when you have a songwriter on an album that's selling 15 million yeah. albums, somebody's getting paid a little bit right. more. And we never really even thought about that. I mean, it's, Oh, that's good. Yeah, we never really talked about it. Um, you know, we all knew, yeah, if you write a song, you're going to be making a lot of money. Yeah. But none of us really cared because we were all making... A Still lot of money. Did any of you care? Did any of you care either who who presented the song, or was there ever was there ever weirdness with I don't really want to sing sing this song that you just sent? No, in, we were or was very it, honest with everything. Yeah. I mean, any song I'd write, and I'd like hear Jason yeah. this, and he would be like, Mm-mm, "That's crap." Yeah. <laughs> like so, like we were very honest with each other, but very supportive of trying to get. Uh, the songs written by us on the album. Now we didn't want to be one of those groups like, well, we're putting this song on because we wrote it. We want no, you want to earn it. We wanted great yeah. music, um, and it just so happens that there was a lot of songs Justin and JC wrote that were just really great. great. And yeah. uh, I mean, they turned out to be incredible songwriters. Uh, and there was one time, I think it was from No Strings Attached. There was one song Chris Kirkpatrick wrote that was really it was a ballad, and it was between these two ballads, and we were all in you know the, the jive um, <clears throat> the meeting room. Going over different songs, we were picking, we were picking the tracks, and it came down to these two ballads that we wanted to put on. I think one was Diane Warren, and one was Chris Kirkpatrick, and we were all honestly like, "God, you know, if it comes down to it, like the Diane Warren is just like this much better." So we chose that one, and I still to this day am pissed at myself for not standing up for Chris, being like, "Well, it was just as good. We should have given. I mean, we should have definitely given that yeah. track." You know, for him on that album. Yeah. So looking back, like I think we were a little too honest, um, and situations like that, I think we, I, I should have definitely had a better decision. Mm. When you guys, not to skip ahead, but you have a, a whole life after insane. So, <laughs> yeah. two thousand one happens. Celebrity ends up being the second fastest selling album. Oh, I did not even know that. <laughs> At least in this is this is the note I have. I have the second fastest selling album in SoundScan history at the time, only behind No Strings Attached. Um, cool. I mean, it's crazy because Celebrity, just, you know, after No Strings Attached being so big, you know, the next album you were so afraid of because it has to be as big or you look like a failure. And Celebrity didn't sell as many, it only sold like 8 million records. And to a lot of people, that looked like a failure. So stupid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it looked like a failure to. Our record label and our management, because I think that's when they started saying, "Okay, we need to get Justin to break out of this because it looks like it's going downhill." Wow. Yeah. What was that like? Um, I mean, what it, was that conversation uh, about? What leaving the group? Sure. Um, well, we, it was such a slow roll. We didn't we didn't really know what was happening. So, like I said, you know, I had to be back to start the album November first. It didn't happen. You know, three years later, they're still saying. Oh, we got a, you know, we got three more months. I'm sorry, because his Justin solo project blew up. No one knew because we were going to take six months off, and he was going to record an album, and he's and he even did not trust that it would ever do anything. He's like, probably won't do, you know, anything, but uh, he just wanted to try the solo thing, and it just blew up, and it hasn't stopped to this day. 
So after about three years of, you know, not being able to get in the studio, that's when Justin finally sat us down. He's like, look, it is not slowing down and there's no way I'm going to be able to come back to the group. So, you know, it was about three years after Celebrity that we knew we weren't recording anymore. Were you waiting during yes. that three years? Oh, yes. Of waiting and writing. This was finally for this album. And this was the first album that we were going to have that Lou Perlman got zero on. So, you know, no strings, he get half. Celebrity got like a third. And then this next one, completely clear of Lou Perlman. So I was excited to... One, be able to write as a group again. <laughs> um, and so I went to Nashville and I just started writing, writing, writing. And um, and I was like super excited to like start presenting this stuff, but you know, we never got to that point. Did you release music? Uh, I released a solo um, probably about four years ago. It was, a, it was a song called Walking on Air. And that's what really solidified me not really wanting to be in the music industry anymore. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, I guess two questions. One is, why did it take so long? Um, I ate my confidence. I had no confidence at all. I Because as a bass singer, you know, I never got leads or any of that kind of stuff. And no one even attempted to get me to sing leads. Um, so I never thought I was a good enough singer. Um, so when this song got presented to me a few years ago... I was like, okay, this will be fun. And I loved doing it. It was great. And, you know, we they released it, but everywhere around the world, you know, it, it did well. But America wouldn't even play it. But that's, if it did well everywhere in the world, I mean, there are artists that, you know, Robbie Williams and James Blunt and some of these artists who are just massive if you leave the States, mm -hmm. like can't yeah. walk down the street kind of thing. But if they walk through West Hollywood, no one would yeah. even, you know. That's still successful, is it not? It is, but it's not. Are your expectations that? No, I just wasn't different? having fun. Oh, that's different. Yeah, um, I realized I'm not a solo artist, and I'd never want to be a solo artist. Um, mm -hmm. It was, I mean, I enjoy singing. I love being on stage, but I enjoy singing, being on stage with those guys. <laughs> like yeah. that's what I those realized. guys in particular yes, too. Like yeah. I loved being an in sync. Like that was my life. That's what I'm good at. Um, and that's where I'm the most creative. And then after that, I really got into TV and film and that's where I am today. And I realized I'm a, I'm a much better writer for film and television. Like that's where my brain can go. Um, musically, I'm not as talented, but there's something about scripts that I was really good at. And that's when I decided, you know what? I had a great run with music. Let's follow another passion of mine and something that I'm even more passionate about. And that's why I kind of went over to TV and film. But before that, you're, and maybe, you know, as a writer, to be listed in the New York Times bestseller list and you're a co writer on that, what was the process of writing a book coming out of, out of NSYNC and out of the closet? I mean, yeah. that's the point of the book in a lot of ways. Yeah. So, so <laughs> what is it, you know, the process of, you know, it's all about hit songs. It's all about, you know, whatever it is, record sales. The book industry is totally different. Expectations must have been probably not anywhere near as big as it ended up being. Yeah, you know, not at all. What What is that process to go from being a musician to an author? Yeah, you know, writing a book is uh, a lot harder than I ever thought it would be. You think... 
you would be like, oh yeah, it's gonna be. No, I just thought, oh, okay, yeah, I can. It'll take me like six months. I'll get with a, you know, my my co-writer, and we'll get all the stories down, and we'll put it in a great format, and it'll sound great. Oh no, it was such a process. It took well over a year, um, and pouring your guts out like that because this was right after I came out. So this was my first time to, and I never really interviewed about me coming out. I just kind of, I disappeared for a while after that because I didn't know how people would react to it. I thought immediately people were just going to hate me. Did you get any negative? Of course, yeah. I mean, you get a lot of negative, but majority was positive. Yeah. And that's what surprised me. I, uh, you know, the the Jay Leno's of the world, you know, doing the jokes, but in such a good positive way of kind of like, can you believe people actually care about this anymore? Yeah. Type of, and I was just so happy <laughs> that people were just, who cares? And that was just like, oh my God, I can't believe, you know, people are actually positive about this situation. But of course you got a lot of negative stuff too and you lose some friends. Um, but they you know that's their own ignorance and yeah. what can you do? Right. But with this book, I wanted to tell my story and you know, it was very raw. Um, looking back, there's a lot of things that were incorrect that were just did not that we missed an edit, like just different dates wrong and that type of stuff. And, and, and even looking back now, there's my feelings have changed a lot on different situations. Like what? Uh, I mean, the whole space thing was fresh. So, you know, and I never, I wasn't allowed to talk about that until this book. So, you know, getting that off my chest and telling everyone how that went down, because everyone was confused about that whole thing. (laughs) Everyone's like, they thought it was all a big publicity stunt. Um, so being able to share that and the craziness, um, that I went through over in Russia, uh, was a lot. And, you know, everyone knew the music side. So yes, that's in the book, but everyone kind of knew that part. What I was interested in was telling my coming out story and the space story. And, uh, and so how did the band feel? I assume that they, you know, this is years after, but you guys, are you guys all close still to this day? Oh yeah. We pretty much talk daily. Yeah. On a text chain, yeah, we all text with each yeah. other. Yeah. I imagine it's pretty funny. It's yeah. So I mean, we yeah. revert to being sixteen. Yeah, <laughs> so it's, we're always going to be sixteen-year-olds around each other, right? Yeah. Of course. How did they feel about? I mean, they must have been super supportive about the book. Yeah, you know. Oh yeah, I mean, they're all supportive of me being able to tell my truth. Yeah, finally, yeah. yeah. And I knew it was important to have a coming-out story, especially at this time. This was two thousand eight, I think. It was so important for me to get this coming-out story out. Because I knew as a kid, I would have loved to have read a story like that so I could relate to someone. Because I didn't have anyone I could relate to growing up as a gay kid. Were you prepared to be, um, you know, not just somebody who's telling their story, but to become an advocate? Was the assumption that this was going to launch you into, I mean, it ends up changing your career path in a lot of ways because people, you know, it probably it ended up opening up as many doors as it, it did. It, it, it different changed, doors. Yeah, I mean, it changed completely everything about you know my career. You can't predict that. No, and you know you always hear yeah if you come out your career's over and yes my career was over the way that I knew it, but I had to figure out how to switch you know switch it and figure out how, what am I what how, where do I belong in this industry. And so when you when you come out so publicly, this industry being the entertainment industry, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and it, when you come out that publicly on the cover of People magazine, you're now known as one thing. You know, you were Lance from NSYNC. Now you're Lance, the gay guy from NSYNC. So that label was always going to be put on me. I I I knew I didn't. 
I knew I couldn't be an advocate at that point because I knew nothing about the gay community. I even said that publicly. I'm like, look, I, I'm not going to be the one leading all the gay parades right now because I don't deserve that. Like, I don't know anything about this industry yet. So I'm industry, community yet. So I knew I needed to be an out gay man and learn about what the struggles are in the community before I could even speak out about it. How, how did your family, they, I mean, they've obviously been pretty supportive. Yeah, yeah they're know. great. Yeah, they, when I, because when I came out, I was actually on my third boyfriend. So to my friends, I was already out. And I just didn't think people cared because it's been three years now and no one's really written about it. So I guess no one cares. So I was being a little, you know, free with my relationships. Again, in the closet, because, you know, I would go in one door, they'd go out another, you know, that type of stuff. We didn't want any pictures together. Um, because again, I thought we were going to do another NSYNC album. So I, I didn't want to ruin our next album by being outed. Because uh, I knew our. But the band knew. At no, that the point. band did they not. They still know. didn't know. So still when you say your friends, point. yeah. It was, it was no, it's again, I didn't want NSYNC to so know about it. Because yeah. Yeah. I knew we were getting back together. So <laughs> right. I'm like, all, all right. right. Um, yeah. But with this, the boyfriend that I had when I came out, that was, I think, the first time I was like truly in love and I didn't want to hide it anymore. And that's when I decided, you know what, I'm, you know, I'm happy to, you know, show off this relationship because I'm super happy and I want people to see that I'm happy. Yeah. Um, it, not to, I don't, I don't want to gloss over the astronaut thing because of all the things that we've had on this, this podcast, we've, I don't think we've ever had an actual <laughs> astronaut. And being interested in astronomy or, you know, space aeronautics or all of that is that would make sense but to pursue being an astronaut a cosmonaut having to learn russian all of the things is particularly unique on this planet i mean there can't be a hundred people who've been in your position in the history of humanity so that said how did going from being a band member to to being an astronaut, how did how did that happen in a in a I want to do this to actually doing it phase? Yeah, I mean it again. It's kind of like in sync. It just landed in my lap. Um, you know, it was something I always was interested in, and I wanted to be a space engineer. Thanks, to, actually, it was the Mickey Mouse Club that made me want to be an astronaut because <laughs> I watched the Mickey Mouse Club in sixth grade, and on Fridays they have a career day, and they had a space engineer on that. And he said, if you want to be an astronaut. You know, basically start as a space engineer because space engineers, you know, can graduate to become astronauts and fly to space. I'm like, okay, I'm going to be a space engineer. Um, and so that's, my, that was my path until, you know, NSYNC landed in my lap. And then, um, it was, we had already decided to go on a six month hiatus, uh, for, you know, cause Justin wanted to do that solo album. And I was so happy because we had not had a day off in years. And I was excited for six months of, I don't know what I was going to do. You know, I was going to maybe shoot a movie here, you know, relax, just enjoy, you know, time off. Um, but it was about two months, uh, after that, that I got a call. Um, and they were like, look, we, uh, we want you to fly to space and we want to do this whole TV show. And, uh, you you know, it's all about the youngest person to ever fly to space. And I thought it was Ashton Kutcher punking me. So I'm like, this is not real. And so it took a week for them to convince me that this was, Real. Wait, how did they know you wanted to do this? An AOL chat room. 
Yeah, they were this this company. Uh, I forget some space whatever space adventures whatever. They were going to be the ones to put the next you know person in space. They um they were in an AOL chat room and they were asking just people out there, hey, you know, if there was a celebrity you would like to see to go to space, who would it be? And an NSYNC fan spoke up and said, oh, Lance Bass, he's always wanted to be an astronaut. And they wanted someone that would take it seriously. And, you know, and I was of the age, they wanted the youngest person. And so that's how I got it. Some fan just recommended me to be the one to go. When somebody thinks, oh, I'm going to be an astronaut, they, I think they would assume uh, that that means that they put you on a on a rocket and they send you to space. But the amount of work it takes to become an astronaut and yeah. the pressure, were you scared about it? Was, you know, the physical shape you must have had to be in? I'm, all of the science you had to learn about it. Mm. Um, that's a that's a lot longer than six months of yeah. training. Well, it was crazy because it was a three-year, it was a three-year program condensed into six months. So, it was intense. I still have PTSD from this whole experience. Really? For sure. Yeah. What is no the PTSD doubt. from it? Many things. Um, they, they were always challenging you um, and trying to scare you because they wanted to see how you would react to certain situations. Most of space training is emergency training. So you have to know every second of your mission, if this happens, what do you do? And you have to react in split seconds. So most of the training besides, you know, learning the whole rocket science behind everything. And for some reason we had to learn every nut and bolt of every, you know, Soyuz and all that things you didn't really have to know, but you have to learn it, I guess, as, as an astronaut. Oh, and all in Russian. Um, but there were times where, you know, I'd find tracking devices in my head, you know, and I'd have to pull out tracking devices that they'd like slip into my head somehow. Um, they would bring me out cause, what does a tracking device in your head look like? It's like a little metal rod, tiny metal rod. Yeah. And, and they put one in me the first time I went over there for uh, the medical testing because you have to pass medical testing before you can go into training. And I failed it the first time because I had an irregular heartbeat. So I was, and we were still on tour, the celebrity tour. So I went back and I finished those shows. And I remember I was in my office and my assistant you know, was behind me. And I'm like, and I kept feeling the splinter. I'm like, what is this thing? And so she took tweezers and pulled it out, and it was this metal rod. <laughs> so that was the first time I knew they were tracking me. Um, and so I just knew, oh, and by the way, I was gay. Uh, I definitely had met someone at this point who went to Russia with me and was my quote-unquote assistant, and they had no idea. So I, it was, I was so nervous. I mean, nothing ever happened between me and this guy because – I thought there was a camera on me at all times. Like they were just spying on me the whole time. And, you know, Hollywood negotiating with Russia, not a good thing. Um, they've never done an entertainment contract. And Russia, you know, I do respect the way they do contracts because it's, you know, it's all about the contract. If you say, I'm going to pay you $50,000 in the contract, but then you say, you know what? We, we earned a lot more. We're going to give you a million dollars. Like, no, 50,000, the contract's 50,000. Like they are strict. Um, and Hollywood, They've never done anything like this before. So it was not a fun negotiation between them. So as I was training uh, in good faith, they were still negotiating this flight. And it was going to be a TV show on CBS. Then that, Les Moonves screwed that one up. And now MTV took over as a documentary. Um, but because of this crazy fighting with contracts and, you know, they were all about when's the money coming? They had to get paid like every certain amount of weeks. And 
I was on the hook for that. You know, it wasn't oh. my agents and everything that were there. So during class, I would be the one taken out with a gun to my head saying, where's the fucking money? Where's the fucking money? So that's the shit I had to, to deal with as I'm trying to learn how to fly to space. In Russia. I would have people, <laughs> you know, with guns to my head begging for money. So it was, you know, all living on a military base that was still set in the 70s and, you know, no air conditioning. Uh, so it was it was a rough to rough go time. from that to because if you're still on tour during some of that that you have to come back and perform in arenas in front of fans. Um, what is the what a mind fuck? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't imagine just that the solitude of one of it uh, to to be in front of 20,000 adoring fans. Yeah, it was definitely uh, different because, yeah, I went from years of 500 people around you at all times and every little detail of your day is is planned out um, and you just work to, yeah, you're by yourself, you have no one, and you're in class from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day. Did you speak Russian before this? No, So not at all. <laughs> it's a hard freaking language. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know it had a whole different alphabet. That that's what screwed me at first. I'm like, really? I have to learn a whole different alphabet first? Yeah. And then of course my Russian teacher um only spoke French and Russian. And they thought that that would be a better Close way enough. to teach me. And it wasn't. It wasn't at all. Um and so it took me a good couple months to really get the hang of Russian. I mean, it's so crazy. Um, you didn't end up going to space. How do you feel about that part? I mean, it sucks. You know, on one hand, it was an incredible experience to train like that. And my crew was amazing. And I did so many mock missions that I feel like I did my mission. Because um, a lot of people didn't, a lot of people think, oh, he's just going to fly up to space, float around, and come back. But no, I was going to live on the ISS for 10 days. Um, I had my experiments that I was doing that I was in charge of. And, uh, I mean, you go up there, you, you work, you know, it's not just a free ride. If, if it's available now for people to go to space tourism, would you be on the first flight up there or are you done with this part? No, I would definitely go. It would be a, a roller coaster for sure. I think it'd be great. You know, when Virgin starts going, I'll definitely, you know, pop on one of those flights. I definitely don't want to be on the first one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I want to get them to do a few flights before yeah. I, I get on that. But uh but my dream is still to get on that Soyuz and uh and and finish my experiments that I wanted to do on the ISS. Over the last ten years, you've gotten further into you know film, television, making documentaries, making doing all kinds of stuff, dancing on TV. You've got all kinds of for someone that hosting. was a horrible dancer. I sure made a career out of dancing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Hosting shows on Sirius, doing podcasts. Um, what haven't you done that you're supposed to be doing? <laughs> um, I, you know what, being a dad. I think that's my yeah. next adventure. Uh, you know, I want to have kids and I want to know what it's like to, you know, raise a family. Yeah. Uh, you know, my family was so incredible and I want to be able to give that to, you know, my kids. Are you going to adopt? Maybe. We don't know. We're, we're trying to have our own right now. Uh -huh. um, it's been a long process. The IVF, and I know a lot of people yeah. listening have gone through this. And thank God it's not taboo to talk about anymore because so many women out there thought it was so taboo to talk about IVF, you know. Um, but now it's such a normal, you know, thing. And the, the best way of, you know, to have kids, the safest way, of course, is IVF. I mean, you have the healthiest kids ever. 
So for two years, we've been working on it, um, failed a couple of times, uh, and we're going to restart again this spring. And if that fails again, then we're going immediately to adopting because, you know, I'm, we were going to adopt anyway, but I just felt like, oh, let's just try to have our kids first uh, before I get too old. Uh, but yeah, if it, if it doesn't happen this year, we're just going to go straight to adopting. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that happens for yeah, you. Me too. Um, are you ever going to get involved again in performing music? If obviously you did the solo album a couple years ago, yeah. but is the is the desire to still ever is it still in there at all, at all to do music? It is within sync. Yeah. yeah. Uh, without in sync, it, it just a it. it doesn't interest me uh, really. I as a as a performer now as a mm. producer, I would love to get involved with other groups. I've always for the last few years, and I just haven't had time. I've always wanted to be the anti Loop Roman. I wanted to create a boy band or a girl band, you know, since that is what I know, and do it right. You know, have them own everything, and they. It's like a, a legit deal. And so I wanted to be able to give that back to another artist. And um, I did manage a few artists back in the day, country artists, um, but I never got into the pop world with that. And I really wanted to to form a band uh, that could be the next in sync, but them actually get a good deal. Yeah. yeah. I hope you do that. Um, all right, so our, we're going to go to the next segment. Okay. I'm going to list five things. And you just say what comes to the top of your head. Okay. <laughs> I mean, this feels so easy. So I was going to do a bunch of other things, but I feel like I have to do at least these first. Okay. So we'll go with Joey. Joey? Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, yeah, Joey, I mean, best friend. He He's my boy. It's so funny, man. I, I went to school out here and moved here in 1998. Yeah. You know, that's my freshman year being in, in LA. And I'm I'm in a band my house band for my the fraternity I was in was Eve Six. I don't know why. So <laughs> all of a sudden funny. I was like opening for this band, and yeah. I was like, "Oh, um, this is really cool!" Like, there's so much fashion that came from what you guys were doing. Oh God, sorry about and that. So, so I have like pleather pants, <laughs> oh, and I had horrible. the I had the facial hair, the mm-hmm. Joey Fatone oh, facial yeah, hair, the flavor saver. Yeah, yeah and oh. for sure, for sure, there's. <laughs> There was a, a Joey Fatone doll that somebody gave me and was like, it looks just yeah. like you. And That's here right. I am it's in like a rock band. Or, over there. Yeah, oh, man. It's a. Uh, yeah. But Joey's just crazy. amazing. I, mean, yeah. I love Joey. We are definitely the odd couple. I mean, we could not be more opposite of people, but for somehow we we gel. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And you guys have similar paths after the, you know, after the group. You guys yeah. still have embraced the fame from it and have used it to leverage really cool opportunities, you know. Yeah, and both of us definitely relate in the fact that we love talking. <laughs> you know, we're we love showing off, we love being, you know, having attention. So, you know, it was natural for us to go into this hosting role that I always loved. I mean, even as a kid, you know, I would always make my own radio show. So I had, you know, I would you know, have the tape player ready and I would call the DJ and they'd play the song I need, but I'd, I'd have it on pause and I'd unpause it. So I'd make all these kind of my own makeshift radio shows because I wanted to be Wolfman Jack. So like I always wanted to be a talk show host, even as like a little kid. So now that this opportunity came around uh, and people were asking, oh, would you host this? I'm like, yeah, this is great. And I honestly, if you look back at NSYNC and you see any interview with me, I'm the most boring person ever because 
I didn't want to, I didn't want people to hear me talk because I thought people would figure out I'm gay. So when you hear me, I'm like, hey, yo, there's someone with you, you know, like I'm just, you do not, I mumble, I'm boring, no personality whatsoever. Do you think you sound gay now? I mean, no, I mean, I can, I mean, if, yeah, I mean, there's some things that I, yeah, hear myself saying, like, oh, yeah, I'm totally, that's, that's very, like, man, I yeah. think that's, I think it's, I think it's really projecting. It's mm-hmm. like in this era, it feels like artists are, more in touch with their femininity, no matter how straight or gay they are. Yeah, you know, like which is nice. Yeah, and we went through that in the eighties too. I mean, you know, yeah. that was just as you know. Feminine. So weird that it became um, it became more conservative, and then yeah, less. It did. It really, it really goes really through. And I remember it. people saying, "Oh, because you know, being in the closet, you hear all the gay jokes. You know, you you hear all the negative things, which makes you stay in the closet even more." But yeah, it's uh, you know, it was. It was just, it was scary, but I, I, there were things that people would say. Oh, if if you say the word "so" a lot, that means you're gay. So oh if you're God. talking and you say "so," so like you're gay. So there was all these things that I just took out of my vocabulary uh, to make sure no one could pinpoint that I was gay. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, Chris Kirkpatrick, mm-hmm. <laughs> another crazy one. Uh, Chris, I mean, he was the founding member of the group, so you know. I owe everything to him. And, you know, he had this vision that was, you know, that was incredible uh, and super talented. Like one of, I mean, his voice, I think is just incredible. A very Frankie Valley, uh, incredibly high voice. Um, Justin Timberlake. Uh, super talented. Even at 14 when I met him, I knew this kid had a lot going for him. Um, and he just had this confidence, even at such an early age, uh, you knew that he was just going to be excellent at what he did. Yeah. Uh, and I remember when I first met him, his voice hadn't even changed yet. It was just, it was just changing. So uh, yeah, so it was nice to see his growth. J.C. Chazé. The most talented vocalist I've ever heard. Really? Yeah. I mean, Out of that whole group? Oh, God. I mean, J.C.'s voice is the best male vocalist I know of. I mean, I, and I'm comparing Brian McKnight. I mean, the, the greats. Yeah. Um, Does he know you feel that way? Oh yeah, I've told him that many yeah. times. Oh yeah, I think yeah. I just tweeted it last week. Yeah, it was great, perfect. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just I'm such a fan of his because one, he's an incredible dancer too. I mean, he's got it all. But man, that voice. I mean, I was oh, I know what it was. Um, uh, it was an anniversary of this. I promise you. Um, and um, oh my gosh, who wrote that? Oh my gosh, what's his name? <laughs> Shit, Babyface? No, no, no. Um, oh my gosh, singer, white guy. Sam Richard Waters? Marks. Oh my God, Richard why did I forget Richard Marks? Oh, oh, okay, so okay, okay. Richard Marks wrote that. And so it was an anniversary. Yeah. So he tweeted, you know, like, oh, this, you know, this promise you. And and I listened to it again and it just, I forgot how great JC's vocal was. So that's why I tweeted. I was like, this is the best JC vocal I think I've ever heard. Amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, Michael, your husband. Uh, uh, as cheesy as it is, he completes me. <laughs> um, you know, I've, I've dated. Uh, a lot of frogs in my life, especially when you <laughs> first come out and you don't think you can find anyone, especially when you're well, in the closet, especially you don't think you can find anyone. So you gravitate to the first person that shows you attention um, and that you can trust. And and then you get into these like bad relationships, which, you know, I, I learned a lot from and I wrote a lot in my book. There was a lot of, th- <laughs> I was basically Elizabeth Taylor <laughs> in my book. Um, I went through a lot of, a lot of uh, horrible relationships. But then I found this guy, and it was just 
such a different relationship. We've never fought. I always thought fighting was how you showed passion in a relationship because I only dated Brazilians. <laughs> so it was very, very passionate relationships. Um, and this was just so easy, like so easy. And now it's been nine years and it's still the easiest thing I've ever had. I love that. Well, thank you for doing our podcast. Well, thanks for having me. We have, like I was saying, we've we've had, you know, eighty to a hundred guests at this point, and from all different eras and from different walks of life. But there aren't that many people who are part of, you know, what you were saying. This magical era of. Album selling, spreading the, you know, this, it was touching so many people. So many people can think of InSync as, you know, their first, this kind of concert, yeah. you know, or this Which kind of, I, I mean, it's just so, yeah. it's so, so influential. It wasn't, we know of other people who were in other projects that were really successful but aren't considered as influential or weren't you know for whatever reason you were you were at the epicenter and then to leverage that into a career of you know pursuing entertainment and we keep trying to explain that the definition of a songwriter or a writer in general is really not just somebody sitting at a piano it can be just somebody's being creative with putting music to their life. It can be all kinds of things. And somebody who's writing books or working in documentaries or films or whatever it is, it's still, it's just as much writing as the person who's writing a musical, that's writing, you know, any other kind of music, long form music. You're just writing the longest opera right, right. after being in this incredible group. So, uh, thanks for being a part of this. And Thank uh, you. yeah, here we go. All right. <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of And the Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.